the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, where people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the creator of Milkshakes for Mali, an award-winning Australian storyteller. I'm on a mission to end persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, inspired by our seven-year-old daughter, Mali, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. Mali will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her, blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. Milkshakes for Mali is the creative solution to a social problem, which is persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, as not enough people donate blood. One in three Aussies will need blood in their lifetime, and yet only about one in 30 eligible Australians donate. It's my mission to change that, while thanking as many blood donors as I can reach along the way. This is a special New Year's Eve drop, and it is also the final episode of season three of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. 2023 has been such an amazing year for my blood donation advocacy, and I have been holding on to this episode to drop at the end of the season. Um, it's a beautiful, nice, light, joyful episode, um, and I think it will really bring everyone some festive season joy and some hope and happiness heading into 2024. What you can likely hear in the background of this um, recording on and off is the joy of my family celebrating a belated Christmas together on New Year's Eve. Um, Out in the lounge room, there is seven grandchildren, three siblings and their partners, and my mum at the helm as grandma. Uh, Anyone who has read the Milkshakes for Mali book will understand that not one of these people would be here today without Australian blood donors who saved the life of my mum with a postpartum um, hemorrhage and blood transfusion after delivering me prematurely. We owe the joy of today, our lives, and the lives of those we have gone on to create in those seven beautiful grandchildren uh, to the anonymous blood donors who have made our survival possible with their kindness and generosity. Today, you will hear my chat with Catherine Starry, who has two sons named Max and William. They have enjoyed a beautiful Christmas together, as we are today, with thanks to Australian blood donors. Like Marley, William will be dependent on Australian blood donors for life. He has immunoglobulin transfusions made from donated human plasma to treat his common variable immunodeficiency. Put simply, this means that his immune system does not produce the antibodies at a normal level. This makes him susceptible to serious, potentially life-threatening infections. However, weekly immunoglobulin infusions mean that he can enjoy most aspects of a normal childhood, just with some additional risk assessments. Catherine may be the only Melbourneian that I've ever spoken to who enjoyed the benefits of having the longest and strictest COVID lockdowns of anywhere in the world as it meant that she could keep her immunocompromised little boy safe. But now, thanks to Australian plasma donors, he has a new line of defence that means he can keep going to school, having fun with his friends, playing with his brother, playing soccer and enjoying celebrations with his family. 
Catherine comes to this chat with bucket loads of gratitude and a blood donation advocacy mission of her own. And it's a joy to have her as part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. I hope you enjoy our chat. Good morning, Milkshakes for Mali listeners. This morning we are welcoming Catherine Starry to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. Um, she is jumping on board as an amazing blood donation advocate in Australia um, and she has an incredible story to tell. So thank you so much for being part of it, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. I um, I need to say this right at the outset. I just think you are an absolutely incredible person you're, oh, what you're doing for this community is absolutely fantastic and I am hugely inspired by everything that you do. So it's my honour to be speaking with you today. <laughs> Sincerely, it is. Yep. Thank you so much. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about um, the blood donation community and blood donation advocates is that we're all in this for the same reason. So there's so much support and it's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. So it's very exciting to have you as part of Milkshakes for Mali community now. So welcome well, on board. <laughs> thank you. It's, as I said, an honour, actually a genuine honour to be here. <laughs> thank yeah. you. So before we get into talking about your son, William, can you tell me about Catherine Starry Marketing and what you do in your business? Yes, of course. So I've been working in marketing for about, well, I've got a marketing degree. So I've been working in marketing for about 20 years or so. Um, I did during COVID decide being the crazy person that I am, that I would do a law degree <laughs> um, and as, did you do. Work, as you do. Um, I did work in law for um, a year, but just mm -hmm. was not the right environment for me as a single parent with you know a child who um, has extra needs yeah. so just just not the right um, place for me um, hence working as a freelancer in yeah. marketing which I really love and am able to structure my time as I need to which is fantastic mm -hmm. yes so anyone who has listened to other episodes of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast will know that this is one of the things that we talk about alongside our blood donation advocacy um, is considering um, anyone who has got someone with an injury, illness or disability in their house is considering that as a family with additional needs. And that's a really important example of the way, you know, we don't like to refer to our kids as special needs kids. We refer to ourselves as a family with additional needs. And I think that better reflects the way that it impacts on all members of your family. Absolutely. I agree with you entirely. And some industries are better set up to support that. And unfortunately, others are not. Yeah. And I really have found that as a, you know, as I said, as a single mom, freelancing yeah. suits me perfectly. I'm so lucky to work with the clients that I do who are fully yeah. supportive of me and my family. Um, and yes, we work really hard to make it work for us. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, when you have a child, particularly one who um, has some challenges with their immune system as you do yes. you just yes. know you know you just never know what one day could possibly look like to the next <laughs> I, that is that is no true word has been spoken Kate as you well know you sort of <laughs> wake up in the morning and you brace yourself and you're like okay yes oh, we're going to school bring? today <laughs> yes we're going to school we can do what we need to do and often we can't and so we just you know bend and flex and make the accommodations mm. that we need to when we're 
very good and adapted that now. So, um, yeah, yeah, we do what we do, don't we? And even when they're at school, you've got your phone in one hand oh, at times, expecting a phone call to come and pick them up. <laughs> yes, I've got. Do the you have other children? Number. I do. I have another son, Max, who yep. is nine. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, very conscious of his um, role in our family and the journey that he too is going on mm-hmm. as part of this. Yeah. Um, but he is, you know, a wonderful um, child in and of himself mm-hmm. um, and is also a fantastic brother to William, yeah. which Amazing. I'm very lucky to have two wonderful boys. Yeah. yeah. And it's phenomenal too, the different perspective on life that you see um, in children of families with additional needs. Um some of the things that they see sometimes and some of the things that they experience just gives them a totally different perspective. You might see as your kids get older, particularly with the teenage dramas and all of that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, our kids are kind of just like get a real problem. Like after all the other things that we have seen, we have seen what a real emergency and a real problem looks like and this is not it. (laughs) And I mean, this is one of the gifts, isn't it? Because it is, is. it's all about perspective and being able to really look at things and say, you know, um, does that really um, matter in the no, big game? Really yeah. We've got a lot going on over here. So yeah. yes, and yeah. I think I, I hope that, you know, there's many gifts that we've had being in this situation, but I really do it is my biggest hope that my boys are able to maintain that sort of level of perspective as they grow mm. and become amazing people in themselves. Yeah. And they will. And they absolutely and they will. will. <laughs> That's right. They absolutely will. Um, so let's talk about William a little bit. So he became well, unwell in 2019. Can you just give me a snapshot of what things had been like before that? Did you have any indication that something wasn't quite right? We, William was actually born with a really small hole in his heart, um, atrial septal defect he was born with. Um, and so we became um, friends of the Royal Children's um, when he was about eight weeks old. Yeah. Um, he hadn't been feeding properly and was always asleep, which is not necessarily uncommon um, in newborn babies. But mm-hmm. I was having to wake him up every couple of hours to feed him and what have you. So We went to a paediatrician who then, you know, referred us off to the Royal Children's where he was diagnosed with the ASD. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were told at that point that it was likely that at some point William would need surgery to repair the hole. Um, Fast forward five years and, you know, regular six-month visits to the Royal Mm -hmm. Children's in between, and the hole had actually miraculously repaired itself. So we were like, this is amazing, like, see you later hospital we won't be back kind of vibe mm-hmm. and sure enough um 2019 arrived and our world changed significantly mm-hmm. at that point yes yeah, so up until that point though he had been relatively well we did make the call fairly early on that William wouldn't go into childcare just because he was at higher risk of developing infections and what have you. So um, I was a stay-at-home mum during that period. But mm-hmm. up until that point, he was relatively healthy and we really had no reason to think mm-hmm. that what was coming was coming. Yeah. yeah. So at higher risk of developing infections or being higher risk because of the hole in his heart that he had had? That's right. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, that and was that was what we were led to believe at that period. Yes. Okay. And yep. just to clarify for our listeners too, when you um spoke of his diagnosis of the hole in his heart, you referred to it as ASD. That is referring to the hole in his heart as opposed to autism. Is that correct? Correct. Sorry, yep. atrial septal defect. So yes, <laughs> yes. There's a number of ASDs, isn't there? Sorry, my bad. Just- yes. Our yes. listeners will know that I often talk about all three of our children who have autism. So we refer yes, to that as them course. being autistic or having ASD. So just to clarify. Yes, yes, just to clarify. Yes. Just so to you clarify. Need to say- yes. So yes. I yes. believe that um he you just thought that he had a virus to start with in 2019, and that led to your four-week hospital stay and a significant change in all of That's your lives. Right. Yes. So William um was in grade two at the time and woke up one morning and said, I can't get out of bed. And I was kind of just like, come on, mate. <laughs> you know, you can't get out of school that yeah. easily. Time to hop up. You know, off we go type thing. You know, mm-hmm. not the first kid to not want to go to school on a random yeah. Tuesday morning. Yeah. Um, and then he was, and then he said to me, no, I can't get out of bed. And so I took him straight to the GP who thankfully sent us straight to the Royal Children's. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, we arrived there, you know, presented well, other than the fact that he was saying he couldn't walk. He could walk, but he Mm. felt like he couldn't walk. And so we sort of sat in emergency waiting around and I didn't, I've spent enough time kind of in emergency to think, oh, it's good. They're not calling us in straight away. This is great. Like this is an excellent You know what a real emergency looks like. You do. You absolutely, (laughs) and we have since been there. But at that point I was like, okay, cool. No problems. I'm happy to wait. It means we're not at the top of the list. Great signs. I'm always happy to be waiting in that that waiting room versus being straight in these days. Um, So once we got in there, his knee just just swelled up um mm. and so it was all very um the, the doctors weren't sure of what was happening and they started obviously to do their blood tests and tests after tests after test we um got admitted um because the knee kept swelling um and the doctors couldn't work out what was happening they did um, a couple of surgeries just to remove the the, the fluid, sorry, in the mm-hmm. knee, but still weren't really able to identify what was happening. But yeah. what was happening is his, his infection markers were going up and up and up really, really significantly and really mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. And so by day 10, and it did take 10 days for a diagnosis, mm-hmm. he was diagnosed with Hib which, and you'll have to forgive me for how I pronounce this, but it's Haemophilus influenza B, which is not a flu, but it is an infection of the blood. Mm-hmm. And it's a really serious infection. Thankfully, in William's case, it manifested as septic arthritis in mm-hmm. the knee, but it could have been far worse had it have landed on his brain or his lungs. So we're extremely fortunate in that. The interesting thing about that diagnosis was that in 2019 only 20 people in Australia had that diagnosis Um, and that is because we are all as you know community as is William uh, immunized against Hib Mm. so it's just on the national register you just get it when you're a child and William did too and at one point the doctors came into me and said are you sure he's had his immunizations and I was like Yes, I'm so sure. But then, you know, you get to that point, and I know you know this, we are so sleep deprived. I thought, 
Maybe I did miss maybe, it. Maybe I missed it. <laughs> maybe I missed that. Maybe I missed that six month injection. Or, mm. And obviously, I knew that I didn't. But when you get to that point of having zero mm. sleep for such a long time, yeah. but sure enough, we checked the records and we checked it all, and he had in fact been immunized against Hib. Um, and so he spent that month in hospital on the uh, IV antibiotics. He did school in the hospital. It was um, quite an experience for all of us. And I know you've spent significant time in hospital as well. So, um, you know, I think in some respect, again, to talk about perspective, oh. being there for that amount of time and um, seeing the children that you see there, it is a real insight into how other people are living their lives as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we then did hospital at home for a few months just on this antibiotics um, and we almost started our life in isolation in 2019. So we were being, once William was released, we were being extraordinarily cautious. Like if he was invited to a birthday party, I'd be ringing the family saying, is there anybody there who's sick? Or we were really, really cautious. Um, mm -hmm. William was going to school for probably half days for the rest of 2019 while he built himself, while we built him up again. Mm -hmm. But we were very much living in a bubble at that point. Um, and so the testing began as, began as to why William contracted this illness when he was immunised against it. Mm -hmm. And it did take... What are we in now? 2013. So it did take three years of six monthly testing for a formal diagnosis. And I'm mm. sure you know. <laughs> we know it so, so, so oh, well. We know it. So the other thing that I will um, put into the episode here is that anyone who is familiar with Marley's story will know that when she had the, so the last, most recent time sounds awful to put it this way but the most recent time that we nearly lost her and we actually had said goodbye to her um, and she was put into isolation with suspected um, COVID and anyone who wants to hear that story go back to the first episode in our podcast that's Marley's story don't listen to it when you're in the car um, it is. A I lot did like your caveat about that because I, I did start listening and I still, you were like, don't listen in the car. And I was like, okay, I'll no, come back. No, 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 don't no. do that. But I'll pick up that you said um, before that you were really lucky that it didn't affect his brain or his lungs. And the way when Marley had him, that it manifested in her was that she got septic pneumonia um, and that was on top of already having a very, very inflamed brain that was being impacted by an autoimmune condition. So we know how incredibly lucky we are to still have her even aside from everything else that had happened. Um, but yeah, it's a scary, scary thing. And I also understand how rare it is. You know, there's usually less than 20 cases a year yeah. that uh, you know, reported in Australia and how we ended up having, you know, on top of everything else that she had. But it is these kids that have compromised immune systems that end up picking up infections like this. And, you know, it's one of the first big warning signs that you might have something going on with your kid's immune system that might not quite That's be right. right. Exactly. So when he finally did get a diagnosis, what was explained to you? So it was... Um... It was a real um, shock to me because 
William had, as I indicated earlier, been a relatively healthy child. Like, yes, he had his coughs and his colds and all of that sort of stuff, but we hadn't ever been admitted to hospital prior to that. And so the doctors were a little bit miffed about what they were seeing in terms of what was presenting in front of us Mm -hmm. and then what the blood tests were saying. And so that was a little bit confusing to me because they were sort of talking to me as if this was a really serious thing and it is but to me I was looking at my child thinking but you're really healthy and I don't this just makes no sense to me so it was quite a um, confusing diagnosis in some respect but Mm -hmm. nonetheless and we were at the point where we were having blood tests every three months and they were saying to us if this trend continues we are going to have to consider IVIG Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was sort of off in the future Mm -hmm. I thought it was off in the future Mm -hmm. nonetheless the blood tests were indicating pretty rapidly that William's body was not able to produce the antibodies needed to fight infection at a fairly alarming rate Mm-hmm. Um, and then he started to lose weight and stopped growing, you know, in a way that the doctors were measuring in a way that they felt comfortable. And so then we pretty quickly started to have some serious conversations about what we needed to do for William. Mm-hmm. During that period, he was also, we also discovered again, much to my surprise, that he had 60% lung capacity. Yeah. And so this is a child who plays soccer three times a week and who is running around. And then the doctor said to me, again, <laughs> we don't understand what's going yeah. on. So much so that the um, person doing his lung function, his initial lung function test said, I need to reset this machine. It's off. Like I cannot believe what I'm seeing in this child versus what these tests are Mm. telling me. Mm -hmm. So we ran the test again, and I don't know about you, but I'm kind of used to tests coming back a little bit skewed and then they'll go off and do it again and it'll come back completely different and then they'll want to run it again. Like tests do seem a little bit unreliable. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. and you realise when you have got a child um, who doesn't have a common condition that there's so much guesswork involved in medicine as well and the way that one doctor will interpret those tests is different to the way another doctor will interpret them. And Absolutely. Especially while you're in that holding pattern that, you know, you knew something wasn't quite right but he wasn't acutely unwell. So you're kind of waiting for something more acute to happen. That's right. And so, yeah, so during that, so when they discovered that his lungs were operating at 60%, and again, you would understand this, that kicked them into gear really, really quickly because once your lungs start to deteriorate, they cannot recover, you Mm. know, like other parts, other organs do. So that was the catalyst for us to start um, this immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And so then the story you know, chapter, whatever we're up to. begins. (laughs) So what is the official diagnosis then that he has? Is it just that he has a compromised immune system? So it's it's called common variable immunodeficiency. Mm -hmm. So it's um, kind of lumped into a a bigger sort of um, diagnosis that they really can't pinpoint other than to say, yes, he is severely immunocompromised. His body 
is not producing antibodies that it needs to be. Yeah. Mm. And so it's really difficult then as a parent after you've been through something challenging like this with your child and you don't necessarily know what the path forward is going to look like. While your child's well, you want to give them all the opportunities that you can. But you also don't want to put them at risk (laughs) by having too much community exposure. And we have had that really tricky balance with Marley in that, you know, we've nearly lost her quite a few times. We know that she could relapse at any time. So we're sitting in this beautiful sweet spot at the moment. We don't know how long that will last. Um, Could be forever, could be until tomorrow. Like you just don't know when she might relapse. So you want to give her all the opportunities possible and expose her to everything that if she's unwell again, she might not have the ability to experience. But with that perception of risk, knowing that when you put her out in community settings, that she is at risk of becoming unwell and that could be what tips her over the edge into a relapse. Um, How did you find that in terms of being able to balance that risk? So in one way, and I know that, you know, there'd be a lot of people who would, you know, want to knock me down for saying this, but living in Melbourne during COVID was absolutely godsend to us. Being the most, you know, lockdown city in the world, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like we can't leave our house and people have to wear masks and yes. this suits our life perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm probably one of the only people in Melbourne who would say, oh, yeah, the COVID lockdowns were great. That was amazing. <laughs> we were similar. We were very, very similar with Marley. But, yeah, that was our actual reality. Mm. So as I said, after he got sick, we sort of, unbeknownst to us, started our own what we would now very commonly refer to isolation period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, COVID was, <laughs> you know, amazing yeah, for us in yeah. terms of protect mm-hmm. being able to protect William. I think it really did buy us a lot of time in mm-hmm. terms of starting the treatment that he now has because mm-hmm. we were, we everyone we were we were safe. Yeah. Um and so going back to school was incredibly anxiety provoking for me. Um yeah. And yet William needed that interaction with his friends. And so, as you said, the balance, it's uh, every day, the balance Mm. is so, Mm. it's it's real. Yep, Um, yep. And so, yeah, it it is something that every single day I'm considering risk as Mm -hmm. you are. Um, For myself and with Max as well, I don't want us to bring home germs you know, where we can avoid it. Of Mm -hmm. course, we can't always avoid it, but we actively go out of our way to avoid it. I think this is probably one of the benefits of being a separated family is that when Max gets sick, he can go and spend some time with his dad or, you know, William will go to his dad or whatever the circumstances might be that does allow us to separate the kids when we can. Mm -hmm. Um, We were able to... um, but to somehow avoid COVID for William until early this year, Mm. which was just um, amazing because Max and I had both had it, but William managed to avoid it. And as I'm sure you can imagine, when the two lines came up on the test for William, my heart absolutely sank and my anxiety peaked off the chart because I thought, 
This child has 60% lung capacity. We all know how bad COVID is. I know how bad it affected me. Mm-hmm. I just thought, what? how are we even going to do this? Mm-hmm. I, I was petrified to say mm. the least. And again, I don't know how, but William was asymptomatic. Mm. He didn't get a cough. He had a one-day fever, and that was the extent of his COVID. So he the had fascinating been... part about that is you wonder what his experience of COVID would have been like and if we would even be having the conversation in this same way if he hadn't been having the immunoglobulin infusions. He, we hadn't actually started it at this point. Oh, this wow. Thing. So he, he, but he had had his three immunizations. Yes. Yeah. So I am, you know, obviously, as you are a big advocate for um, our community um, having the um, immunizations, but mm-hmm. he had had the immunizations. I do wonder, and I have, and I'm, you know, I don't have any leg to stand on here what it did actually do internally because yes he was asymptomatic on the outside but how do we know what impact it actually Mm. had on him um but anyway so that was sort of our lives leading up until 2023 when we did get the diagnosis or the formal diagnosis and then the big decision to start we Mm. are now doing um subcutaneous um you know you're doing intravenous but immunoglobulin treatment yes yes so William is having the same treatment um, as Molly has had. So it's the, um, Molly has the intravenous immunoglobulin infusions. William has them subcutaneously. Um, So yeah, it's that pool of donated human plasma. um, And it's really difficult to get a handle on how many blood donors we have needed for Marley to be able to have hers. And it would literally be thousands and thousands and thousands of Australian plasma donations that have gone towards, you know, saving and preserving her life. So everyone knows that Marley has hers. Um, She's in remission at the moment, so she's not on a regular protocol. But when she does, she has it through her port, which she calls her special button, or she could have it through a cannula. Um, How does William have his? So this is where it became um, a little bit overwhelming for me. So mm-hmm. we were offered um, two options. So we were offered the um, intravenous mm-hmm. option and we were off- offered the subcutaneous option. Um, and the Royal Children's were not um, necessarily guiding us in a direction other than to say that we do know that Williams will be a lot ongoing and lifelong thing. And we all also know that we have, as you have, spent an extraordinary amount of time in hospital. And did we want to be including yet another hospital visit once a month, three days off school, that didn't feel like the right choice for us at the time. Yeah. So we went down the um, subcutaneous route. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I am not a nurse, Kate, nor do I have any desire to be. I think nurses (laughs) are incredible, incredible people and I take my hats off to them because they are absolutely amazing. But it did um, and it has given me a new hat to wear, I suppose, because Mm -hmm. I now need to administer that treatment once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially what that involves is we have, um, two sort of small 
needles that I each would do this once a week. I mm-hmm. put into William's abdomen mm-hmm. and then it takes about 40 minutes for the plasma sort of infusion to take place. Um, it takes about two hours sort of in total. So we do the numbing cream and I know yep. that you would know all about yeah, that. Absolutely. We put the little yeah. needles in and then it goes into the pump and it sort of um, goes through his body really slowly. You too would know that it's really important that it doesn't go in quickly. So important. Um, yeah. So very important. So it's a slow sort of process um, and it gives William the antibodies that he needs to fight those infections each week. Um, over winter, he's also been on a really strong dose of antibiotic just mm-hmm. as a preventative measure. Um, I was a little bit apprehensive about that, as yeah. I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, <laughs> however, William has been so healthy this yeah. winter and I am so very grateful for the care mm-hmm. that his doctors have given him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what does his future look like then? Is it like assuming that he doesn't have a horrible infection that affects his lungs or, you know, something like that, what do things look like going forward? If you can maintain things at this level, should they stay like this or is this something yep. that's likely to progress? It's a good question and it's a little bit of an unknown mm. other than to say we do know that this will be a lifelong condition mm. and this will be a lifelong treatment. Potentially at some stage when William's an adult, he might choose to go down the IVIG route and just do it once a month if that's what he so desires. Mm. Um, But it it is a lifelong condition Mm -hmm. um, and it is the lifelong treatment that he (coughs) will require. Mm. And I get goosebumps thinking about it because, as you would know, relying on the good people who... And I always get emotional when I talk about this, but relying on the good people who donate blood and plasma to keep our children healthy is it's simply incredible. And it's not lost on me for a moment how grateful and how lucky we are to be to live in Australia and yes. to rely on good, good people to mm-hmm. do the right thing to keep mm-hmm. our children healthy. Mm-hmm. I've got the vials of plasma, you know, that sit in my fridge. And every time I open the fridge, I just think these are like, it's such a reminder of the amazing people in Australia who donate to keep Mm. William healthy. Mm. It's it's not lost on Mm. me Mm. for a moment. And, you know, hence our drive to, you know, become advocates because it's so so important. So important. And I think unless your parents like us or you love somebody who is dependent on blood products to stay alive the messaging around you know persistent critical blood shortages in Australia is something that we will just scroll past on our phones or the media doesn't even really pick it up anymore we don't realize how prevalent it is and how often it does happen you know particularly through winter coughs colds you know you have to have a it's only you know a break of a week or whatever after you have the flu shot before you can donate but all of those things combined or, you know, bushfires or floods or any of those things that happen. And we have been in situations where we've had to push Marley's treatments further apart or we had a situation where we had to transfer her from Canberra to Sydney because it was 
easier to transfer the kid than it was to transfer the plasma when there was such a critical shortage. So it was easier to take her to a different state to have the infusion done. Um, And at that stage, you know, she was very unwell and there was lots of factors. But, you know, when I hear critical blood shortage, I hear, does my child get to stay alive? It actually is. It is that. It is yeah. very much that it is. If this isn't a oh, we know we need blood and we know that there's a shortage, and you know, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts where I think you're right. I think people think someone else is doing that. I don't need to worry about giving blood because you know, Joe down the road's doing it. It's not yeah. my problem. Yeah, but actually, it's it is a big, it is a huge, huge concern, mm. um, and it's absolutely not something that I take for granted not even for one Mm. minute yeah and we also think Joe down the road is the one that's going to need it but one in three of us will be dependent on Australian blood donors to preserve our lives at some stage during our lives and you know I say to people often when you're sitting in the car with your kids you know we know which one of ours is the one that needs the blood products but you know, statistically, it could very easily be another one of us as well. So, you know, you just don't know when that time is going to be that it's you or someone that you love that will need those blood products. And, you know, my husband and I are both regular donors and we were before Marley got sick, probably not as regular as we should have been, but we were blood donors before. Yeah. Um, and you just never want to be in that position where you know that you could have done something or, you know, if you hear of a loved one who has, you know, lost their life because there wasn't the blood products available that they needed and you haven't been a regular blood donor, you know, I just feel like as Aussies, we really have that duty to each other to, you know, support the people in our community. I absolutely agree with you. And I think the other interesting part to that is I think people – and it sounds so easy to say this and it almost gives me shivers saying it, but I think people just forget. I just yes, think that absolutely. they're not even. And so it's not until you hear your story or our story that you think, oh, God, I really need to go and do that. And I think mm. that's why the role that you play in doing these podcasts is so important because it just mm. reminds people yeah. that we're just everyday. I'm just an everyday mum in Yarraville doing my thing. And yet I mm. am so so reliant on this Mm. product from Mm. literally like you said thousands and thousands of people to Mm. keep my son healthy Mm. and so it's it's such a weird place to be but I'm an everyday person you're well you're not an everyday person because you know you're doing amazing things but I (laughs) I am an everyday person and I was a person when all of this started that didn't have a clue like I'd never made a podcast I didn't know how to write a book like I didn't know how to do any of these things but I saw the incredible power in telling Marley's story and you know it was you know people were like what can we do to help you and it was go and make a blood donation you know that's what we need to keep her alive we don't need any more food dropped at our door thank you very much please just go and make a blood donation because nothing else is keeping her earth side at the moment that's all that it was so yes and it's, it isn't that remarkable that people, all, and all it takes is you just have to roll up your sleeve, you sit in the chair for 40 minutes, 
mm. and it's done. Yeah. Like it's we you we don't even need we don't need money during this tough economic period. We don't need anything. We just mm. need an hour of your time. Mm. And that's the thing is that you know I think particularly post pandemic people have really had a chance to rethink what their values are and what's important to them and what they're contributing individually within their families and then also within their communities. But that has also come off the back of, you know, rising interest rates and increased cost of living and stuff. And people want to do good things, but they aren't necessarily in a financial position to do good things at the moment. And making an appointment to donate blood, you know, blood, plasma, platelets, whatever it is that you want to donate, but you know that you have the potential to save three lives. And it's not just saving three lives, it's keeping three families like ours together. You know, it's keeping little brothers and big brothers with their little brothers and keeps, you know, our daughter with her big brothers and kids with their parents. Ah, Exactly. And it allows, you know, our children to start to do normal things. It allows William to scoot to school every morning. And I know a lot of people take that for granted, but I never take for granted when he says, okay, love you. Goodbye. Mm. I'm like, oh my God, you're healthy enough to go to school. This is amazing. You know, he was able to, go on camp recently where he's never been able to do that and yes it was kind of in a modified sort of way but that that would not that was not an option pre-plasma infusions it just was not Mm -hmm. and so you know we get to live a relatively normal life Mm -hmm. because good people do good things to help us and Mm -hmm. I am so grateful to these humans who you know are prepared to roll up their sleeve Um, And I think even when, and I'm not sure if you're experienced, but I suspect it would be similar when you're sitting in the chair and you're looking around the room and you think, I am just surrounded by good people. Absolutely. I I sit around a lot of, you know, boardroom tables and meeting rooms and I can't say that I'm sitting around good people like I am when I'm at the blood Mm. bank. There's nothing better. It's just amazing, isn't it? it, Isn't it? It just Mm. gives you this inner sort of warmth and so one of the most special things that we have done during our blood donation advocacy has been doing a walk of blood donation floors and we couldn't do it for a little while because you know COVID and restrictions and whatever but we've been able to start doing it again this year and um Marley's older brother Campbell who is 11 came with us on the last one and it's not a big formal thing we just do a walk around blood donation floor And Campbell kind of took the lead on the last one and, you know, went up to people and said, you know, this is my sister Marley. She needs blood products so that she can stay alive. So thank you for saving my sister and keeping her alive. And it's just that really simple message. Like there's never a dry eye in the house. No, and there's (laughs) not one here. Yeah. (laughs) Seeing it from their perspective, you know, it's just such a simple act that somebody can do. And yeah, it, yeah, keeps families together. So tell me about uh, William's blood donation team. What is the name of the team and how can people join it? Yes, so we're called um, William's Golden Goblins. So that was (laughs) William's name. um, That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So plasma, um, for those who don't know, um, when it comes out is a yellowy kind of golden colour and plasma is what we need. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the name of, for William. Um, yeah. So people can join William's Golden Goblins or they can join Will Chase and Marley or, as you've said in the past, <laughs> we don't really care what team really you're care. on. 
<laughs> Please go in and donate. That's all we ask. We, yeah. you know, yeah. it is it is great to know the numbers, and it always feels good when you see, you know, how many lives that you've saved. But whoever's team you're part of, just please go and and do it because, yeah, it just makes the world of difference to our family and your family, and you know, thousands of other families, like you say. Because at one point we will all be very much touched by this. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's essential. It's critical, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very, very much for sharing your story today and being part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. And we wish William all the best. And we can't wait to see what amazing things he does with his life that wouldn't have otherwise been possible um, without the incredible kindness and generosity of Australian blood and plasma donors. So thanks for being with us, Catherine. Thank you so much, Kate. And just on behalf of all, you know, families of recipients, please keep doing the amazing, amazing work that you do. And we're all sort of cheering you on and love being part of this community and we'll continue supporting you in every way we can. Amazing. Thank you so much. In this episode, Catherine and I spoke about the way that Australian blood donors have kept her son, William, with his brother, Max, and how they keep Marley with her brothers, Thomas and Campbell, and how the last few weeks, Australian blood donors have also kept my little brother with me. My brother, Jake, is battling lymphoma, and last week I watched as seven whole blood and platelet infusions were put into his body um, across the space of just a few days. They preserved his life, made the collection of his bone marrow possible for transplant next year, significantly improved his quality of life, allowing him to feel strong and able to continue with his treatment and also gave him the clarity to feel empowered in his own decisions. Like William just did with his family, Jake spent Christmas Day on their farm out the back of Coffs Harbour, which is where we are headed this afternoon. Um, but he got to spend that day with his lovely wife, Suze, and their little girls, two-year-old Evie Kate and 11-month-old Abby. Australian blood donors are making his treatment possible and they help to ensure that he has many, 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 many more Christmas mornings with his beautiful little family. I am recording um, the last bits of this episode from Coffs Harbour today as we prepare to ring in the new year with my mum, sister, brother and their families and how incredibly lucky we are to all be together. We all thank Australian blood donors who have made this possible. And that's a wrap for season three of the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Um, it has been the most incredible year and I'm so grateful to everyone in the Milkshakes for Marley community who have made this just such a joy. Um, I never underestimate the privilege of being trusted with people's stories um, and the vulnerability and the courage that it takes to share some of the most difficult moments of people's lives um, with the world through this podcast. We have a strong international following now um, and I love seeing when new listeners pop up from all over the world. We are able to measure the impact of blood donors who have been inspired to donate and add their donations to the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team when they go in to donate and there's been nearly 2,000 lives saved um, this year through people that donate blood 
for the milkshakes for Marley team. Um, but I know there's lots more donors in Australia that are part of our community and donate for different lifeblood teams or have lifeblood teams of their own. But it's impossible to measure internationally the amount of people that we have touched. So um, I just want to say thank you to the people that keep trusting me with their stories, um, particularly for the book, which is already doing incredible things. There will be a formal launch of the book at the end of January. Um, and it will be available in stores um, and more widely online at that point. So, yeah, just keep an eye on bookshelves and also on the Milkshake Somali Instagram page where I will definitely share additional information. And please consider making a blood donation for the Milkshake Somali Lifeblood team, particularly over this Christmas period um, where people might be travelling or when you look at all the wild weather that's just happened in southeast Queensland um, across the whole eastern side of Australia, there's lots of people that might not be able to make it to their regular donations or travelling. Um, so now is an outstanding time to make a donation. Um, if this is somebody who is listening and would like to support my brother Jake's um, blood donation drive as well. He has a sub team under Milkshakes for Mali called Shakes for Jake. So when you go into Lifeblood, if you just would like to add your blood donation to the Milkshakes for Mali dash Shakes for Jake Lifeblood team, um, that can add to that team tally and we can see the impact of using his story alongside Mali's to increase blood donations in Australia. And if you are unable to donate, please consider making a financial donation to the Leukemia Foundation. Their residential accommodation is making it possible for Jake to stay close to his family during this difficult um, time for them. And obviously anybody who's in this position, it's difficult emotionally and financially. Um, and the Leukemia Foundation do the most remarkable things for Australians battling blood cancer. Um, I'll pop a link in the show notes to how you can support them. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Welcome to country and audio production by my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher, who has been instrumental in founding Milkshakes for Mali this year, this podcast, and also getting my book off the ground. Um, I am so lucky that I married such an incredible human. So a big thank you to him. Um, and also social media assets by Jason at Strosky Media. I wish everyone a happy and safe new year. Please be careful on the roads. Um, I can't wait to see what 2024 brings for milkshakes for Mali. Um, and as always, I will leave the final words to Mali herself. Thank you for my prisma.